Hi, I'm Tyler Saltzen, pastor of Grace Bible Fellowship in Peru, Illinois. Our desire at Grace Bible Fellowship is to proclaim the Word of God for the glory of God. At the center of our proclamation is the one who is Savior and Lord, Jesus Christ. We base who we are and what we do upon the good news of Jesus. If you would like to know more about this good news or would like to know more about Grace Bible Fellowship, please visit our website at www.gbfperu.org. That's www.gbfperu.org. I'm glad you've decided to listen to the teaching of the Bible along with us as we seek to understand it and be transformed by it. I hope you find this time meaningful, challenging, convicting, joyful, and even life-changing as we worship through the preaching of God's Word. I should invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to the book of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. We will be in the first nine verses of Ecclesiastes chapter 9. If you are using the Pew Bible in front of you this morning, our text can be found on page 557. I would encourage you to follow along with us this morning there in your copy of the Scriptures, whether that's the Pew Bible, your own Bible, your phone, whatever it might be. Would you stand with me as we read God's Word together this morning? out of reverence, respect for the fact that the God of the universe has revealed himself to us through his word, communicated to us through his word so that we can know him. After I read verse 12, I will say, this is the word of the Lord, and together we will say, thanks be to God because we are thankful. Let's read. But all this I laid to heart, examining it all, how the righteous and the wise and their deeds are in the hand of God. Whether it is love or hate, man does not know. Both are before him. It is the same for all, since the same event happens to the righteous and to the, and the wicked, to the good and the evil, to the clean and the unclean. To him who sacrifices and him who does not sacrifice. As the good one is, so is the sinner. And he who swears is as he who shuns an oath. This is an evil in all that is done under the sun. That the same event happens to all. Also the hearts of the children of man are full of evil. And madness is in their hearts while they live. And after that they go to the dead. But he who is joined with all the living has hope, for a living dog is better than a dead lion. For the living know that they will die, but the dead know nothing, and they have no more reward, for the memory of them is forgotten. Their love and their hate and their envy have already perished, and forever they have no more share in all that is done under the sun. Go. 
Eat your bread with joy and drink your wine with a merry heart, for God has already approved what you do. Let your garments be always white. Let not oil be lacking on your head. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love all the days of your vain life that he has given you under the sun, because this is your portion in life and in your toil at which you toil under the sun. Whatever your hand finds to do, do it with your might, for there is no work or thought, of, or thought, or knowledge, or wisdom in Sheol to which you are going. Again, I saw that under the sun, the race is not to the swift, nor the battle to the strong, nor bread to the wise, nor riches to the intelligent, nor favor to those with knowledge, but time and chance happen to them all. For man does not know his time, like fish that are taken in an evil net, And like birds that are caught in a snare, so the children of man are snared at an evil time when it suddenly falls upon them. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Grant, we ask, Almighty God, that the words which we hear this day with our outward ears, may through your grace be so grafted inwardly in our hearts that they may bring forth in us the fruit of good living to the honor and praise of your name through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. You may be seated. How important are you? Or how important do you think you are? Would you quickly be ready to admit, I'm not that important. Nothing really hinges upon me, upon who I am. And so to each other, we might say, I'm not that important. How does your life answer that question? What does the way you live, the choices that you make, the things that you do, what you prioritize and live for, the things that you say, the things that you think, what do all of those things tell us or tell you about how important you think that you are? Maybe for all of the admitting that we would do to one another that we're not that important, our lives would tell a different story. Give a different reality about what we really think about ourselves. How there is a narcissist in every one of us that says and tells us, the world cannot go on without me. And how often does that reveal just how important you think you are? The world will not be able to go on if I'm not in it. Maybe this is the reason Sigmund Freud made this observation when he said, in the unconscious, each one of us is convinced of his own immortality. 
Now, I don't agree with Sigmund Freud, many of his theories. But I wonder if he's on to something there when he says, each of us is convinced of our own immortality, that there's some way that we're going to escape death. Somehow we're going to be different. Somehow that we are going to be the exception. Again, we might not readily admit this observation. We might say that we will die just like everyone else, but how difficult is it for us even to imagine our own death because even as we try to imagine it, we are the ones seeing it. We are still surviving as those who are trying to imagine our own death. And even in our imagination of our death, everything is in relationship to us. Will people miss me? Will people be sad and grieve over me? And even as we try to imagine our own death, even then, we're not really gone. And that is your world and that is my world. As we live and move and have our being, the world exists and if we're honor, honest, it exists with us at the center. Do you believe me when I say that? If not, think about this. How many things in your life, in your mind, get their identity from how they relate to you? The Illinois Valley is my home. Alyssa is my wife. Those are my kids. This is my church, my school, my job. How much of what is in your life gets its identity from how it relates to you? And so you then become the center of all those things, and you can't imagine anything without you at the center of those things. How important are you? It is like your life is a novel. And you are the hero. You are the main character of that story. And everything in that story relates to you. And there's one thing we know about any good story. The hero can't die. If the hero dies, then the whole story dies, except in the Bible. But in our lives, the way that we think about it, we're the hero. And if we die, it can't go on. That is why each of us might try to convince ourselves of our own immortality. We see ourselves as indispensable. And it's here where death demonstrates just how foolish this way of thinking is. This kind of life is. Because what does death tell us? You are not too important to die. You are not indispensable. The world will go on without you. And death nags at you constantly and tells you you are not special. And how you will be one day long forgotten. How many of us will even have our names remembered by our great-great-grandchildren? How humbled are we by death? And nothing is more humbling than hearing the curse 
put upon man in the garden after he fell and sinned against God. It says this, By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and to dust you shall return. Who do you think you are? And how often do you think about yourself as dust, as dirt, as worm food? With this comes the echoing that it is appointed for man to die once. It's appointed for you to die. But does death's reality change anything in you? Should it cause anything to happen in your life? We as people, we as mankind, we as the human race are excellent at ignoring death. We are experts at pretending like death isn't there. And we have become well-versed in how to whitewash death, to pretty it up as much as we can, to try to minimize the blow of death. But it's always there. And Solomon comes to us this morning and he says, you know it's there. The looming certainty of death is not meant to paralyze you It's not meant to stop you from living, but it's meant to cause you to live your life in light of the end. Solomon bookends our text this morning with two truths about death and life, and then at the center he gets at the heart of living with those two truths in mind. So what we will do this morning is we will take the first part of the text, then we will jump to the end of the text, and we'll finish with the middle of the text. I'll try to help you along so as not to confuse you, but how are we to live in light of the end? You can follow along in your bulletin, our outline this morning, but number one, live knowing that death is unavoidable. Live knowing that death is unavoidable. Solomon here is coming to the end of his writing. It's at this point where he begins to give all of the conclusions to his investigation He's been investigating many things in life, and now we're getting to this point of the book where he's revealing all of these conclusions. It's the start of the crescendo until we reach the climax at the very end of the book. He's been examining it all. He's been seeing everything. He's been going to different parts of life and looking at it and trying to hold it up and examine it and try to get to the bottom of it. Everything that he could see that mankind deals with in this fallen and broken world. He's he's looked at it from different vantage points, different lenses. Desperately trying to figure it all out. Desperately trying to get to the bottom of it. Desperately trying to understand what life is all about. What its purpose is. What its meaning is. Trying to clear away the fog of mysteriousness that has settled upon life. We've just learned at the end of chapter 8 this fact that God is inscrutable. That is, we can't plumb the depths of God. We can't figure out everything that God is doing. How He is impossible to understand. And we continue to see just how inscrutable God is in verse 1, don't we, of chapter 9. Solomon looks at the righteous person, at the wise person. Solomon looks at the good man who does what is right, who walks in the truth. 
who is obedient, who lives this life with wisdom, who is able to navigate through this life with wisdom. He looks at all of the deeds of the righteous and the wise. He looks at all of their good deeds, everything that they've done that is right. And that's what you expect from righteous and wise people, isn't it? Good deeds. That's what he finds. But what is the observation he made about the righteous and the wise and all of their deeds? He says this, they are in the hand of God. God has control over them. The righteous and the wise and their deeds do not have any control, do not have any say, do not even, out, do not even control the outcome of anything. They are in God's hand to do with what he pleases what he wants to do with them so that he might receive all of the glory. And it says this, man doesn't know whether what he's done will receive God's love or will receive God's hate. Think about that. He says, the righteous and the wise and all of their deeds, God holds all of that in his hands and they don't know the outcome of what it's going to be. Whether it's going to be love, and I think this is referring to God, whether it's going to be God's love or God's hate. What are we prone to thinking? The righteous, the wise, and all that they have done, surely they will receive God's love. Surely they will know God's pleasure and God's favor. But Solomon says, God's in control and you don't know the outcome. And that absolutely turns our whole understanding of God on its head. Because how many of us, if we're honest, use the circumstances in our lives to determine whether we are experiencing God's love or God's hate? What happens to us in life becomes the barometer for how God feels about us. How often do we use the events in our life as like we're sticking up our finger in the air to determine if it's God's wind of blessing blowing through our lives or if it's God's judgment blowing through our lives bringing devastation. Everything in life is going great. Everything is just how I want it. Look how much I am being blessed by all that I have, by all these events and circumstances. God must really love me. Or, look at my life. Nothing's going right. It's hard. It's difficult. Wave after wave after wave of bad news continues to rock my world. All my circumstances are only going from bad to worse. I can't sleep. I can't eat. I'm plagued by continual depression and darkness. God, why do you hate me so much? And without knowing it, we've bought into a false gospel. A gospel that says, God wants you to be happy and healthy and wealthy, and if you're not, then you've done something wrong, and God is showing his displeasure towards you. But look at what Solomon says. You can be righteous and wise and do all the right things, and you don't know the outcome of what's going to happen. You do not know because you are not God, and you cannot control God. And so we have to tell ourselves this truth. We can't use our life as the barometer for God's love or God's hate in our life. 
We sing about these truths, don't we? We sing this, judge not the Lord by feeble sense. When you use your events in your life as the barometer for God's blessing or God's displeasure, you're judging the Lord by feeble sense. So judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust him for his grace. God is his own interpreter. He will make it plain. And while we are confronted with the truth that we can't control God, we are also reminded of that event of death, the same event that happens to all people that we likewise cannot control. And Solomon says it's unavoidable. Pick your category. Look at these verses. Look at these verses in two and following. Pick your category. Where do you place yourself? The righteous? The wicked? The good? The evil? The clean? The unclean? The sacrificial worshiper? The one who doesn't sacrifice anything? The good person? The sinner? The one who makes promises? The one who doesn't make promises? Pick your category. Pick where you think you land. Pick which one you think will get you ahead in life. But it doesn't matter. They all die. Death is the great equalizer. Death evens the playing field for everyone. You think you can get around death? You think you can avoid death? Doesn't matter how many vitamins you take. Doesn't matter how much you exercise. Doesn't matter how much you avoid all that will harm your body. Doesn't matter if you live a good moral life. Doesn't matter if you give away all of your money. Doesn't matter. The same event, the looming event that you see on the horizon, the death event, happens to everyone and it is evil. It's an evil that is done in this fallen world. And there are people who would like to tell you that death is a natural thing. It's a normal thing. Just part of the process of this world. Don't make death a big deal. It's just natural. Death is not natural. It is the most unnatural event that happens in this world. You know it's unnatural. I don't have to convince you of that. You've experienced it. You've experienced the weight of it, the sorrow, the grief, the loss, the pain, the agony of death. No, death is not comforting. It is a frightful, disturbing, terrifying, and horrifying reality because it is not natural. God did not create this world with death. He created it free from death. It wasn't until Adam and Eve sinned in the garden that the curse of death entered this world because of sin. For the wages of sin, what we deserve for our sin is death. The curse is God's righteous judgment against sin and the effect of that curse is death. And that curse has affected all of creation. We sing about it. Again, far as the curse is found, far as the curse is found. How far is the curse found? The curse has found its way into every nook and cranny of our universe. And every single human being is under that curse. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, says Paul in Romans 3.23. Unless we try to elevate ourselves and make it an, accept, an exception for our lives. Well, I know that death is unavoidable, but what about the righteous person? What about the good person? What about the person who tries their best? 
Solomon brings us down and says, doesn't matter how good you think you are, I've seen the hearts of the children of man. You see that there? I've seen the hearts of the children of man. Literally, he says, I've seen the hearts of the sons of Adam. I know their hearts. I know what's in their hearts. And you know what's there? They're full of evil and madness while they live their lives. No one is righteous, not even one. No one seeks after God. Why does Solomon say in these sons of Adam? Because it reminds us of the one who sinned first. That we are all in Adam. He is our federal head. And that because we are in Adam, we all sin. We can't get around it. We can't escape it. He has sinned, and in him we all sin. He died, and in him we too die. And this flies in the face of the claim that many are making that the world is getting better, that we are progressing, that we are making strides forward, that we are moving forward towards a better society, a utopia where there is more peace, more unity, more love, more good deeds. It brings us all the way back even to the days of Noah, where it says this in Genesis 6-5, the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. Nothing has changed in the heart of man. And it is the evil and the madness that continues in a person and then what? And then they die. And then they go to the dead. And we would think that to be a miserable experience. How I don't want to be that one who has evil and madness in my heart and then I die. And so what do we need? We need a new heart. A renewed heart. A heart that works again. A heart that's able to do what it was designed to do, a heart that's able to worship, a heart that is able to love, a heart that's able to give, a heart that's able to sacrifice. Where do you get this kind of heart that's not full of evil? You get it from the Lord God himself. You get it through believing in Jesus Christ, putting your faith and trust in him, that he gives you that new heart that you need, that's not full of Evil and madness continually, but now is a heart that is able to live to please and honor Jesus Christ. Solomon, in our verses, goes on to give us a contrast. There's the one who has evil and madness in his heart, and then they die, and Solomon says, but the one who is joined with all the living has hope. What's his point here? It's better to be living than it is to be dead. And now, at this point, we have to understand, Solomon is not looking beyond death yet. His perspective is from our world, from our fallen world. And to help us understand this, he gives us a proverb, doesn't he? He says this, a living dog is better than a dead lion, which tells us a truth that we already know. Dogs are better than cats. What is Solomon saying? I have to understand these animals in the mind of 
these people at this time. Dogs were not domesticated animals. Dogs were dangerous, dirty, vile scavengers, vicious animals who wandered around in packs. Dogs were despicable. Lions, as we understand them even today, there's a sense of status with the lion. There's a sense of of them being regal. They are the king of the jungle. This majestic animal. And Solomon is saying, that living dog, that despicable dog, vicious, vile, unclean dog, that dog that's living is better than that regal, majestic lion that's dead. What's the point? While you are living, there is still opportunity. There are still things you can do. There are still ways that you can live. Opportunity that is afforded to you that is not afforded to you when you die. The living at least know that they will die and that it, then it should inform how they live. The dead know nothing. Why? Because they're dead. I'm not here to preach to the dead this morning. There's no more opportunity for them. I'm here to preach to the living because there is still opportunity for you. Are you still alive? The dead are gone and everything they have cherished, every passion that inflamed them, every memory of them has forgotten. They have perished. It's no more because they no longer have any share in the portion in the land of the living, this land under the sun. And at the end, we are left with the fact that death is not only unavoidable, but that ultimately death doesn't make any sense to us. It leaves us perplexed and grief-stricken and doubtful as ever. But what are we pointed to as we think about the certainty of death? We are those who must die well. How does one die well? Is that an oxymoron? Surely it might be a nice thought that somebody could die well, but how in the world am I supposed to die well? In order to die well, we must first realize that death is the limit that God has placed upon creatures who want to be God. Death is the limit that God has placed upon creatures who want to be God. It puts a limit on you. You who want to be and maybe have persuaded yourself that you are the center of the universe. Death reminds us we are not God. Dying well also means that we understand that death is not something that merely happens to us, but it happens to us because we are sinners. You have caused your own death. You are under death because of your own sin, and death is what you rightly deserve because of your sin. You were born under the sentence of death, and from the moment that you took your first breath, you have been moving forward toward death. You need that sin removed. You need that sin cleansed. You need forgiveness of your sin. To die well also means that you are willing to lay up treasures in heaven, not treasures here on earth. It means living 
treasuring Christ above all else and that everything else in life that you hold on to, you hold with an open hand because Christ is your greatest treasure. Christ is your greatest glory. Dine well means that you will think about how you live your life in light of the end. Dine well means that you know the one and have trusted the one who has overcome death. The one who has removed the sting of death that there was because of sin, sin and who now gives you the victory because he has risen from the dead. And let me tell you this morning, the real hope for the living. The real hope for the living comes from a living hope. That living hope is Jesus Christ. That's where our hope lies. Not in a hope that we manufacture in our own lives. Not a hope that you manufacture in your own heart. You need a hope that comes to you from the risen, living Savior, Jesus Christ. Because then you can live with hope in light of the end. Number two this morning. Live obedient, uh, excuse me. Live knowing that life is unpredictable. Live knowing that life is unpredictable. Now we're going to jump to verses 11 and 12 in our text, the very end. We all have ways we think that life should go. We all have expectations of life. You have expectations in your life of the way that you think that life should go, the way that it is right. We try to place nice and neat little parameters on our life in order to try to understand it, but we have to understand something. Life is not a mathematical equation. But we try to create rules in our minds and say that this is the way that life has to go. If I'm going to understand it, if I'm going to make any sense of it, and Solomon, Solomon comes to us and he begins to crush those rules one by one, those expectations, the way that you think that life should work. Solomon says, forget all of that. The race isn't to the swift. Who's going to win the race? Of course, it's going to be the fastest person, right? Who's going to win the battle? Whoever is stronger, right? Who is always going to be provided for? Who will always have enough to eat? Surely, it will be the wise. Who will have the most money? Who will be the richest? Surely, it will be those who are the smartest. Who will find favor in this world and be Praised, surely it's the person with much knowledge. Take all of those predictions. Take all of those things that you think are a sure deal in life and forget it. Time and chance happen to them all. Is that what we believe in? Chance? Chance might not be the best word, but it could also be translated happening or incident. In our common vernacular, we might say something like an accident. This is not denying that God is in sovereign, that God is sovereign or in control. What it is teaching is that we are not in control. Disaster, tragedy, accidents can come upon us even though we had been thinking that we were doing everything right. We're reminded that we are not in control of our own destiny. We have these comparisons. This fish, this bird, the fish is taken in an evil net. The fish are swimming along. 
They don't even see what's coming. All of a sudden, there's a net that encloses around them and catches them. The bird also, going about its business, lands in the snare so that it is caught. And how these pictures push us not only to say that life is unpredictable, but that even death is unpredictable. You do not know when it's going to come upon you. And this is what happens to, again, the sons of Adam. They are snared at an evil time, a time that you do not expect, a time that is inconvenient, a time when you thought everything was going so well, suddenly it falls upon you, rocks your world. You weren't expecting death today, but death has found you. You lost the game. You thought you had a great hiding spot, a spot where it would not find you, especially not today. But death always finds you. With the unpredictability of life and the unpredictability of death, is there any security in life? Is there anything that we can hold on to? You do not know your time, the time to be born and the time to die. They're both out of your hands. So what are you going to do in the midst of this unpredictability? You're going to hold on to Christ, the sure and steady anchor in the fury of the storm. When the winds of doubt blow through you, the sails you once depended upon to get you through, when those sails have all been torn, there is only one anchor that is sure and that is steady. Life and death are unpredictable, but in Christ, your life is secure. Number three, live obediently knowing that joy is commanded. Live obediently knowing that joy is commanded. We come back now to these middle verses, 7 through 10. If death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable, then how should we live our lives? How many of us, if we are honest, we take those two truths, death is unavoidable, life is unpredictable. How many of us would say those two truths cause much anxiety and worry in our lives. That those two truths paralyze us. That all of the things that you might worry about in life, how many of them, if we distilled those worries down, would find their basis in these two truths? Solomon has not told us these truths so that we're paralyzed, so that we cannot live Solomon says, no, you're to live in light of these two truths. And he gets to the heart of the problem here in verses 7 through 10. What is the problem? Why do you struggle with these two truths, living, that death is, living like death is unavoidable and life is unpredictable? What is your problem? And Solomon says to us, the problem is, your problem is, you're not enjoying the life that God has given you. Think about it. Solomon would not have to tell us to enjoy life if it came naturally to us. There's a reason why Solomon says this, and it's because you've got a joy problem. How many, if I asked you today, what's your problem in life? What is it that you're struggling with? What is it that is hindering you from living the life that God wants you to live? How many of you would say, well, my problem is joy? 
But Solomon gets to the heart here and he says, you've got a joy problem. You've got something that is keeping you from enjoying life. And look at what Solomon does here. He doesn't say joy is an option, like joy is a nice suggestion. He says, joy is your problem, and then he gives commands to us. Five commands. Go, eat, drink, enjoy your wife, work. How many of us think that joy is a nice extra, a nice add-on? Well, I hope that, I hope that God gives me some joy in life somewhere along the way, that I can have some joy. Joy is not an option. It's a command to be obeyed. It's not a command obeyed out of drudgery because that's not joy. A command to be obeyed even out of joy. I want to. I get to have joy. I get to express joy. I am enjoying life and while I am doing that, I am obeying God and obeying His Word. So what does Solomon point us to here? What does he command us to do? You see this. First, go... Eat your bread and drink your wine with a merry heart. These would be some of the most mundane things, ordinary things that we can do in life. Eat and drink, we do that every day. Even though they are simple things, they are important things. Do you do even the mundane things with joy? Today you're going to eat and drink. You find joy in those things. Why does Solomon say you can do these things with joy? Because God has already approved what you do. So Solomon says, eat and drink with joy. How can you do this? Because God has already approved. So now the question becomes, where did God approve these activities? And I think for us to see where God has approved these activities, we have to go back to the very beginning, back to Genesis. God had approved of eating and drinking even back in the Garden of Eden. Listen to what it says in Genesis 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. You hear that? These activities are approved, even approved in the Garden of Eden. Approved at the very beginning. God wants us to eat and drink. God wants us to enjoy those things. And Adam and Eve were to enjoy those things in the perfect fellowship of God the Father. But also listen to what it says in 1 Corinthians 10.31. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. These are things that are given to you from God. And Solomon paints this joyous occasion. He says, he goes on to say, let your garments always be white. Let your head always be anointed with oil. He's painting a picture here of this joyous occasion. In the heat of the Middle East, white garments would reflect the sun. You would put on white garments when you're going to a party. You're going to experience joy. You would put oil on your head to keep your head from drying out in the heat. Again, you would do this as you went to a joyous occasion, a celebration. And we might understand these even better if we cast them against their counterparts. If you were in mourning, you would wear black. You would tear your clothes and you would put ashes on your head. But the very opposite happens here. Wear 
these white garments, put oil on your head because your life is full of joy. This is no downcast life. This is a joyous life. And then what does Solomon say? He gives another command. Enjoy life with the wife whom you love. The word of God does not say live with your wife. The word of God does not say put up with your wife. The Word of God says, enjoy the life with the wife that God has given you, that you love. God has given you the covenant of marriage as a gift to be enjoyed. Life is fleeting. Life is mysterious. Life will soon be over. But this is your portion now. If you are married, it is your lot. It is your share in life that God has given you. And I think the heart of what Solomon is getting at is that you enjoy life when you enjoy your wife, husbands. The marriage relationship is meant to bring joy to your life. And look whose responsibility it is. Look whose responsibility it is to ensure that joy is there in the marriage. Is it the wife's responsibility? No, he's given it to the husband, hasn't he? Husband, it's your responsibility that there's joy in your marriage relationship. Husbands, seek to enjoy life with the wife that you love as you go through life together. Go through life with joy. It doesn't mean you have to do a lot of fun things or go to exotic places or have a lot of money. Those are merely external things that don't last. A joyful living with your life comes in the everyday tasks that you do together. It comes in time spent together. It comes through communication with each other. It comes through affection that you show towards one another. It comes in the sacrifices that you make together. It comes through following the Lord together and encouraging one another. Husbands, it is your responsibility to bring joy to your marriage. And wives, don't make it difficult for them. Encourage them in this task. Thank them when you experience joy in life together. And if you're not enjoying one another and the life that you have together, it just might be that you are taking what you can from one another for your own selfish gain and desires. Again, marriage, just like eating and drinking, is something that goes back to the Garden of Eden. That's where God designed marriage. It's where he laid out the covenant of marriage. It's where man would leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and they would become one flesh. So it is joy in that initial human relationship that God created in the very beginning. Lastly, find joy in your work. What the Lord has given you to do, the work that he has given you to do, do that with all your might. Do your work while you have the opportunity to do it. Even the New Testament encourages this when it says, Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. Colossians 3.23 And again, you enjoy this work that goes all the way back to the Garden of Eden. Work was not part of the curse. Listen to what Genesis 2 says. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. That's before the fall. That's before man sinned. All of these things that Solomon is telling us to take joy in, to enjoy, stem from what God gave us at the very beginning. This was God's design from creation. 
and his design from the beginning was a full life to be enjoyed. But with the fall of man, that event that brought sin and death into the world, the fullness, the joyous life is threatened. Our joy is stolen because death is unavoidable and could come at any time and take all of those things away that you are enjoying. The difficulty of enjoying life, though, does not come from God. The difficulty of enjoying life lies with us and our sin. Because think about it. We could take each of those things and twist them to our own end, to our own devices. We can be a glutton. We could be a drunkard. We could be an adulterer. We could be lazy or a workaholic. We are rebels against God's design and we are broken. But the good news is that Jesus Christ has come to restore us, to make us new, so that we can live again according to God's design. Not only is sin and iniquity forgiven and removed from us through our faith in Christ, but we are also being transformed in the image of God's beloved Son. And it's this transformation that we can again live the life that God has designed for us to live from the very beginning. It is Jesus who has overcome the curse of sin and death by becoming a curse for us so that the lives that we now live, we live to God. Jesus is not only the one who gives eternal life, but he also gives full life, abundant life. Listen to what he says in John 10.10. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Listen, Jesus Christ wants you to have abundant life. What's holding you back from that abundant life? It's not Jesus. Jesus is the gateway, is the door into abundant life. The only thing that is keeping us from that is ourselves, our sin. The only way that we are able to obey the command to live with joy and enjoy eating and drinking, enjoy our spouse, enjoy our work is because of Jesus Christ. And we have this certainty that all who are in Christ are headed to that place, that glorious and eternal home where there will be eating, drinking, love, and work done all for the glory of God and for our joy. And to think that this is made possible for us even now while we live this life under the sun because of the victory that we have in Jesus Christ through his resurrection and through his conquering of of the grave and of death itself. Let's look at one more Section of scripture this morning, Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25. Verses 6 through 9. On this mountain, the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow and aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever. And the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces. And the reproach of his people he will take away 
from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. It will be said on that day, Behold, this is our God. We have waited for him that he might save us. This is the Lord. We have waited for him. Let us be glad and rejoice in his salvation. It's that day, it's the day when death is forever swallowed up, that day when all of the tears are wiped from our faces, that we can live today in light of the end. Let's pray. Father, may your goodness come to us through your word this morning and help us. Help us to enjoy the life that you have given to us and to know that we can't enjoy life because of the joy that we have in Christ who has given us abundant life. Forgive us when joy is absent, when joy is gone, when we've let our sin We've let the things of this world attempt to steal our joy. Help us to lift up our eyes. To look past even the perspective of death. To the one who is our living hope. To the one who is our living head to the one whom we follow. The one whom we will follow till our very last breath. We pray that as we live this way, now, O Lord, that your glory would be spread over this globe. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.